Everyone loves a grand finale, and that's what you're about to get on episode 171. Today, we come to the end of our fourth annual New Reads November series. I don't know about you, but I have loved the chance to dig into these recent YA titles. I think it's safe to say that the category has come a long way, and it's also a lot of fun to read. Speaking of a lot of fun to read, let me tell you a bit about this week's featured title. Amiko Jean's Tokyo Ever After was published in May of 2021, and was named a Reese's YA Book Club pick shortly after that. It also became a New York Times bestseller. In Tokyo Ever After, our very cool main character, Izumi, discovers that her father is the crown prince of Japan. Take a minute to let that sink in. Izumi travels to Japan to meet her long-lost dad and his extended family, and in the process, learns a lot about herself. She also may or may not fall in love with her official bodyguard, but we'll get to that later. Over the next hour, you'll hear my guests and I discuss the parallels between Tokyo Ever After and The Princess Diaries, chat about the way book covers change from one country to the next, and share our favorite moments from the novel. We also touch on topics ranging from paparazzi culture and questions of identity, to the enemies to lovers trope and gendered expectations for women. There's a little bit of everything here. I had to try very hard not to fangirl during my conversation with this week's guest, and I have a feeling that you're going to be pretty excited to hear from her too. Listeners, I'm thrilled to officially introduce you to Talia Hibbert. Talia is a New York Times, USA Today, and Wall Street Journal best-selling author who lives in a bedroom full of books. Supposedly, there is a world beyond that room, but she has yet to drum up enough interest to investigate. Talia is the author of the delightful Brown Sisters series, which includes Get a Life Chloe Brown, Take a Hint Danny Brown, and Act Your Age Evie Brown. At the end of this episode, you'll get a preview of a very fun new project she has in the works. Follow Talia on Instagram and Twitter at Talia Hibbert. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. I have a feeling you will. As always, I would like to invite you to follow along with SSR on social media. If you're new to the pod, this is a great way to learn more about what's happening in the community, going on behind the scenes, and coming up on the show. Plus, I share a lot of cute pictures of my dog, so there's that. We are at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find SSR on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast Community. We are gearing up for another month of very fun throwback reading in the SSR Book Club, so if you dig the concept of revisiting books from your tween and teen years, you should absolutely consider joining us. In December, we'll be chatting about Gail Carson Levine's Ella Enchanted on Facebook, Slack, and Zoom. I thought this book was pretty magical when I was growing up, and we're about to find out together if the magic is still there. The SSRBC is free to join and will give you the chance to connect with so many wonderful readers. Learn more and join the fun at www.ssrpodcast.com slash ssrbookclub or at the link in SSR's Instagram bio. 2021 is winding down, and if you look back on this year and decide that SSR was a positive part of it, I would love it if you would think about becoming part of the Patreon community. Patreon is a platform that connects independent creators, like me, with the fans of the content they create. As an independent creator, I fund and operate the podcast 100% on my own, so the contributions I get from our amazing family of patrons truly keep the show moving forward. Patrons also get exclusive rewards, so everybody wins. You can join Patreon for as little as a dollar per month and perks range from access to the SSR Discord channel and monthly newsletters to behind-the-scenes video content and an invitation to our Shit We Read book club. I am so grateful to each and every one of SSR's existing patrons. Join them by visiting www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. The holiday season is upon us, and you deserve to treat yourself to some new books. 
If you're planning on doing a lot of traveling, audiobooks might be the best way to go. I'm a big fan of Libro.fm, an audiobook discovery and listening platform that allows you to support independent bookstores instead of giant corporations when you shop for audiobooks. The audiobooks you get from Libro.fm are exactly the same as the ones you would buy from the big guys, and they're the same price too. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPODCAST when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. That's right, we have a new code. Again, use code SSRPODCAST, not SSRPOD, to cash in on that deal. I can't wait to hear what you're listening to and loving. All right, friends, it's time for one last New Reads November episode. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Talia. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Today is our last day of New Reads November. It's our our last time this year talking about new YA. And I don't think I could have come up with a better book to mark the moment with than Tokyo Ever After by Amiko Jean. Talia, can you tell me a little bit about why you wanted to read this book for this episode? Well... I have been looking into YA books more and more recently, and this one caught my eye because it was recommended as being similar in trope to The Princess Diaries, which when I was a teenager, I absolutely adored. So I really wanted the chance to try and recapture those feelings. And honestly, this one exceeded expectations. Okay, let's take a minute to talk about Princess Diaries, now that I know that you're a fan, because (laughs) I knew next to nothing about this book when I started reading it. Listeners know this, but because of all the reading I'm doing for podcasting in grad school and also just trying to like have a fun separate reading life, I, I very rarely read like jacket copy at this point, especially for the podcast, because I'm going to read the book anyway, so I don't need the whole summary. But I started reading it and I was like, oh my gosh, it's Princess Diaries. <laughs> and I too have very fond memories of the Princess Diaries. So tell me about your history with Princess Diaries. Were you more book, more movie? Like, tell me about that journey for you. I was very much more book. When I was a kid, I didn't watch a lot of TV until I reached the age where other people were saying, oh, have you seen this? And I was going home and saying, mom, why can't I watch blah, blah, blah. (laughs) So I discovered them through the books. I believe at my local library, I read the first one. And um, at the time I had like a book budget that I couldn't go over, but I read all the other ones that I could get. And I demanded that we buy them because I loved them that much. And I've just been obsessed with the Princess Diaries and also the Mediator series by the same author, just made my my teenager dumb. Big Meg Cabot fan, oh, I yeah. I hear. Have you reread any of the Princess Diaries books since you've become a grown up? I haven't. I recently went to a charity shop and I saw one of them. I think it was the second one, and it was the old paperback cover, you know, that was published when I was a teenager. They don't look like that now. No. But because it was the old cover, I was like, oh, I have to buy this. So I bought it (laughs) and I could reread it, but 
I would have to do it out of order, which I don't want to do. So I feel like I'm kind of preparing. I understand. I'm more recently, um, because Meg Cabot has recently started, she has quite a few of them out now, new books, adult romances. The first one I think was called No Judgment. And so I started reading those and I've really been enjoying those just as much as I did Hawaii as a teenager. So that's nice as well. I actually don't know that I've heard about No Judgment. I'll have to look that up and maybe I'll link to it in the show notes, listeners. So I started with the movie, I think, when I was a kid. Like I found my way to the movie because it was such a big deal. And then I discovered that it was a book. And because I was such a reader, it was like, it was all over for me. It was like, I'm losing (laughs) myself in this world. And I think I read the whole series. I may not have read like the last one, but I reread The Princess Diaries for I think our second ever episode of the podcast, which was like, what feels like a million years ago now, but I would like to go back and reread them. I feel like that would be a really fun, like holiday break binge read. (laughs) Or did you ever read the Mediator series? No. I always recommend, I think they're not as well known as The Princess Diaries, but I always recommend them because um, essentially it's about a, a girl called Susanna who can see ghosts and it causes her a lot of trouble because she, you know, she has to fight the ghosts and her mom's like, why are you like, why did you ruin your school auditorium or whatever? And she can't say, oh, I was fighting a ghost. So she goes through it. (laughs) Yeah, that's a hard thing to explain. Like, I don't don't know what you're supposed to do in that situation. I'll have to check that series out too. But yeah, I started reading Tokyo Ever After and I was like, oh, I am, I'm in like Princess (laughs) Diaries 2021. That's so much better. We have representation. This is so awesome. So for a little context, listeners, uh, Tokyo Ever After was published in May of 2021. It was chosen for Reese's YA Book Club. So it has that, you know, coveted white and yellow sticker on the cover, which, by the way, is beautiful. I love this cover. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Do we have the same cover here in the UK? It's very pink. And it's oh. got, is yours different? Yeah. I, let me show you. Listeners, I'll include images of of a few of the covers in the show notes because I'm sure you all feel left out. I'm about to show Tali <laughs> my cover. Oh my God, no, it's completely different. Really? Wow, that's so gorgeous. That's really beautiful. Yeah, I actually, my e-reader died right before this and I realized I had lost the charger. (laughs) So I'm going to try and describe this from memory, but it was kind of all shades of pink and then it had like a kind of pink washed picture, like a photo of the heroine, but like her little face, she's very cute, smiling on the cover. And then I think there's like flowers, but... I don't have very good eyesight. So if there's no flowers, I'm sorry. I got the flower vibe. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, I will find a picture of it and I will include it in the show notes. Do your books have different covers in the US and the UK? No, they don't. I kind of expected that they might, especially with the Brown Sister series being published by traditional publishers and two different publishing houses. I was like, oh, I'm going to get a different cover because I know that happens, but I didn't. They were like, this is fine. And I was like, oh. That must be nice. You can spot it wherever you are. It's easy to, to find on the shelf. It is nice. I think the only reason I was initially disappointed is because as a British reader who reads a lot of American books, I've always been aware that like the transformation happens. And I was like, oh, I'm going to get the transformation treatment. But no. <laughs> You're like waiting for the email any day now, any day now. And it well, you have great covers. I do Thank think you. it's so interesting how like, and now I'm getting off topic, but because we've talked about Tokyo Ever After's two covers, I think it's interesting the way that covers are often different between editions. And I just, I wonder what, 
what goes into that. I worked in publishing for a few years, but never got to be in on those conversations. So if anybody knows, or if you know, Talia, I'm not sure if you've been part of any of those conversations, but I just, I wonder like how those decisions are made. The one thing I do know is that um, when I was a teenager, romance novels, you know, now it's popular for romance novels to have cartoon covers. When I was a teenager, a lot of romance novels in the UK already had cartoon covers, which I think is because we're just a bit more awkward about <laughs> our books being, you know, identified. <laughs> um, so I know that that played a role in some situations. Uh, Julia Quinn, for example, English, and I think her Spanish covers are just very pleasant looking cartoons. And when I saw the American covers, I was like, "Ooh, that is much more dramatic. <laughs> it's a different Bridgerton, just a different take. <laughs> so let's get into Tokyo Ever After. We meet our main character, Izumi. What was your first impression of her? She is in her senior year of high school. She is managing some struggles, some challenges, some kind of like confusion with her identity. Her mom has not really introduced her very much to Japanese culture. She really seems to kind of just want her daughter to blend in. Uh, we don't know anything about her father. Just wait, everyone. <laughs> but she has a great group of friends. Like there's, I think she's a really nuanced character, but I'd love to hear more about your first impressions of her. I honestly feel like she leapt off the page from the very beginning, like such a distinct, relatable and fun voice. And I loved the way that the world was conveyed so quickly and neatly and easily. You know, like I had a completely full impression of her life at home, her community, even her school, but we don't actually go there, with the author saying very little on the page, which was exciting to me because I hate descriptions. So I was like, how do I do this? And I also, I thought it was great to have an exploration of kind of confused feelings around cultural identity, specifically about being an outsider in your own country, whichever country you go to, and especially a conversation about lost cultures. So Izumi, on her mum's side, her mum's parents died in an accident, and before they died, because of World War II, they felt like they had to sort of squash a lot of their culture and their heritage. And I feel like for different reasons, lots of communities around the world have people in them who have had to do something similar, and you do wind up with people who feel like a part of their heritage is kind of disconnected from them and it can cause feelings of guilt even when it really has nothing to do with you and it's not your fault. So I really liked being able to see that perspective. Yeah, I, I would echo so much of that. I also wanted to read a couple of quotes that I found in my research that I think speak to what makes Izumi such a fantastic and unique character. Um, so one review that I read was from the Quiet Pond book blog. I'll link to all of these in the show notes, listeners, as always. But this blogger wrote, in societies where Asian girls are made to feel so much internal and external pressure to be excellent and perfect in everything, it felt validating that Izumi could just be this teenager whose highest aspiration wasn't going to the best college in the country. And it's interesting because I actually, right after I read Tokyo Ever After, I read a book for the podcast called Finding My Voice which we'll be covering on an episode in about two weeks, I think, when this one drops. And it's an older book, and it's about a high school senior who's Korean-American. And it kind of, I would say that it, it speaks more to like that traditional depiction of Asian-American girls that this blogger is comparing Tokyo Ever After to. Ellen, the main character in that book, I don't want to give too much away about that episode, but just for the purposes of this conversation, like Ellen is pushed so hard by her parents to go to Harvard. Like that's kind of her whole goal 
that's been handed down to her from her family. And I do think that that is unfortunately like the stereotype that we, at least here in the US, I don't I don't know if you feel the same in the UK, that's what's been handed to us often in pop culture and media about Asian American teens. And it was really refreshing to see Izumi not dealing with that. And as you said, like on top of that, having to deal with identity issues, I don't know if issues is the right word, but having to navigate questions of identity that are underrepresented in that same pop culture and media that like overrepresents this particular kind of pressure. I feel like the the great thing about having just more and more authors of color or authors of any marginalization writing about their experience is that once you have many rather than few, you can have all those different experiences and they don't have to be either stereotypical or non-stereotypical. So for example, sometimes, especially when I first started, um, I would want to write certain things and I would be like, oh, but that is, you know, a stereotype about Black people. But also everyone's an individual and, and if people do experience these things that are also stereotyped, surely that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be able to talk about them. And I think that the remedy for that is to have so many different experiences on offer that that nothing can really be held up as the the singular experience. And so you kind of are more freed from the pressure of stereotypes. Yeah, I, I think that that's so well said. It was interesting because I didn't plan it this way, but reading those two books back to back and seeing seeing the difference. I don't know exactly what you're finding. My voice came out. I haven't, I haven't gotten to my research about that one yet, but it's been a number of years, I think at least 10 or 20. Um, and so just to see like the transformation in the way these characters are written in such a nuanced way was really, was really cool. Um, a couple of other thoughts that I found about Izumi from these reviews in a review on Culturess. The writer says, from the start of Tokyo Ever After, Izumi's personality jumps off the page. She's impulsive, rarely serious, and incredibly dramatic. She also does what she wants, when she wants to, darn the consequences, or forethought to the clear as day pitfalls. Which is true. Like, she's just so fun. I loved her, some of her quirks. Um, I love that she is, like, so open about, like, the bad TV she watches and the snack foods she loves. I thought her dog was a hilarious touch. Tamagotchi, the smelly dog. Even her dog is a little weird and kind of, like, different from the pet that you might imagine a royal would have, uh, sort of in the spirit of Fat Louie in The Princess Diaries, actually. (laughs) Yeah, and I, I feel like the book explicitly talks about, you know, gender and gendered expectations on women and I feel like she, as a character, very consciously, and you know, she also credits her mum for raising her this way, she very consciously doesn't want to care about those expectations or allow them to control who she is. So whether she meets the expectations or she doesn't, it has nothing to do with trying to be a certain way or even rebelling from being that way. She's just really committed to to expressing herself honestly. Mm, yeah. Uh I just love her. But in addition to loving her, the other thing that grabbed my attention as soon as I opened this book was we got a family tree. That was the first thing that I saw. And then we saw like an imagining of a tabloid with an article about what happens when Izumi moves to Japan. And then I, of course, had to like do a quick flip through the book. And I saw that there (laughs) were more tabloids and a lot of text conversations and when I see things like that in books, I'm like, this is what I love so much about YA. Like, I love when YA authors take those kinds of risks, change up the format a little bit, because that's what I remember most from a lot of the books that I loved most when I was a teen. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you think, for example, The Princess Diaries is literally 
a diary. It's so exciting to me when people use format in different ways. Um, and also I felt like it was just done so effectively, you know, it, it makes sense for the character um, and for the story because she does have to deal with what the tabloids are saying. And so for us to actually see that firsthand just added to the excitement and the tension of the story. And then, you know, after I finished reading without giving anything away, I realized that some of the earlier excerpts that we'd been given from articles were actually really relevant much later in the book. And I was like, oh, that was when this happened and that was foreshadowing this. So mm. it was really well done. Really well done. And by the way, it's okay if we spoil a little bit. Um, <laughs> listeners, you kind of know my policy with spoilers. I just can't help myself. Like we're getting into it. And if we spoil a little bit, I'm really sorry. The book is still <laughs> worth reading. Okay, so now things get juicy. We've met Izumi. She's hanging out with her friend, Nora. They're joking around about the fact that Izumi's neighbor, Jones, has kind of like a creepy crush on Izumi's mom. And they come across this book about orchids. And Izumi's like, oh, this is probably a gift from Jones. Like, how embarrassing. And they open it up. And it's actually, um, inside is actually a note from a man that she's never heard of. It's a poem. It's a poem. A poem. Oh, right, right, right. It's a poem. <laughs> it's so Thank <laughs> you. Very important distinction. How dare I? <laughs> It's a poem. Uh, and that's true. Like if somebody wrote you a poem when you were in college and left it in a book about your favorite flower, you would not forget that. Oh, it was just amazing. And yes, it was amazing. It was possibly the best discovery of an absentee father's identity that I've ever read. Because it immediately, like it finding that poem says so much. It says like, this was a real romantic kind of love. It says like, there's a dramatic reason why he's gone from your life. It says maybe he would want to come back not just for you but for your mum it says oh your mum still loves and cares about him it said so much in just a single poem and also I enjoyed that later in the book poems do kind of make a return as a theme they do and I, I think the other thing that's interesting about this particular like souvenir of his love is that it shows how sort of like specific his relationship with Akumi's mother is this whole like orchids theme that we get throughout the book. He knows what she loves. Like he kind of knows what makes her go weak at the knees. Even years later, we find out that he's been growing orchids thinking of her and like sort of hoping that she might come back and be able to enjoy them. And so in that way, it feels more than a love letter, more than a love poem even, because it's really like just with this eye for what she loves the most. Yeah, I feel like the, the adult romance in the book sort of a secondary romance it could have had an entire book of its own and it kind of felt like it did you really felt the growth and the the big dramatic feelings even if they were happening in the background it was really lovely yeah I loved both parents in this mm. book yeah it's so refreshing in a book written for kids or for teens to see parents that are genuinely just like lovely people and now reading these books as an adult it's interesting to be like, oh, yeah, I would want to be friends with them. Like, I feel like we would hang out. <laughs> I, I still don't have those feelings because I still have a weird mental separation of myself from other adults. Like, no, they're grownups. I'm, I'm not. Nothing to do with me. <laughs> we have nothing to talk about. <laughs> yeah, but they were really great. And, and something else that I came across in my research and looking at a bunch of reviews and blogs about this book is a lot of bloggers were, were commenting on the fact that in this book, we have two really supportive parents who mm -hmm. show up for Izumi in authentic, thoughtful ways, in spite of the fact that she doesn't have this, quote, like traditional family structure. And I think so often when we're presented with, again, I'll use quotes here, like untraditional family structures, 
the narrative is like, there is no support. There's automatically going to be some dysfunction. It's not going to work. Somebody's not going to be there for you. And while Azumi's father like didn't even know she existed at the beginning of the book, as soon as he does know that she exists, he rises to the occasion and he's not perfect. Like they have some weird moments in their time together. But I think fundamentally in this story, we see two parents who are not like they're not resentful of the situation that they found themselves in. He's not angry that he like didn't know she was born. And if he is, he's not letting it affect their relationship. And I I really just love that. I, I love when we see in literature or in any pop culture really that having an untraditional family structure and being loved like are not mutually exclusive. You can have both. Yeah, absolutely. Because even though there is this whole thing going on between the parents, it is distinctly separate from her relationship with both of them and like you said for example if he is pissed about the fact that you know he's had a whole secret baby situation pulled on him we never know because he never lets her know and that's the important thing yeah and I feel like that maybe would have been the storyline in this book had it been written 10 or 15 years ago like maybe the the father's first Mm reaction would have been like annoyance and like, how dare you not tell me about my child? But we don't get that. And I I really thought that that was fun and like a unique take on a story or on a plot line, at least like a subplot line that I've read before. So after doing a little bit of internet research, our girl Nora figures out based on um, this note that they find in the book about orchids, that Izumi's dad is casually the crown prince of Japan. Like it's no big deal. (laughs) Like, get you a friend like Nora who can find this information for you. And I just wanted to call this one line. And I think it speaks to something that you were saying earlier, Talia, about how, like, because of the way Izumi's mom has raised her, she's not necessarily, like, interested in conforming to gender roles that I think we often are used to when you talk about things like royalty. So this is one of Izumi's, like, reaction moments when she gets this news. Princess. That's in italics. Most little girls dream about this. I didn't. My mom bought me building blocks with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Hillary Clinton on them. I just dreamed of having a father, knowing where I come from, and being able to speak proudly about who I am. So Izumi like doesn't really care about the princess part because she's more into RBG and HRC, which again like is a credit to like the way her mom has raised her and the priorities in their household. She's like, okay, cool, cool. I'm a princess, but like, let's talk about how I'm going to meet my dad. Yeah, and I I enjoyed as well that throughout that theme remained present, both from her side and from her dad's side. Her dad wasn't really like, oh, I mean, obviously her dad was wanting her to be a member of the royal family, and obviously they have rules, but um, especially towards the end of the book, it's very clear that his priority is having her be in the family in terms of what that means for them as people rather than for them as royalty and she is asked a couple of times if she ever sees herself being empress because she's the crown prince's only child and her answer is that you know she believes that Japan should be able to have an empress as opposed to things going through the patriarchal line but she doesn't care if it's her. I loved the way we get a sense of the politics in this Mm. book Um, Mm. and not only of the politics but how politics and tradition are connected of sort of the contradiction that's often inherent between politics and progress, how Izumi is trying to square her beliefs about the world based on the way she's grown up with this new 
family she's entering into. And as you mentioned, we get more of that later on. She does get the chance to meet her grandparents, the emperor and the empress. And she has a really interesting conversation with them about this whole succession situation. And maybe women should be allowed to inherit uh, this major role in the in the royal family, in the imperial family. And she very quickly like inspires some change for the first time ever. The emperor brings his entire family out onto the balcony to greet his people. Usually it's just the emperor and the empress that go out, but he for the first time ever is like, you know what, how about, how about everybody goes? And that's purely because Azumi is willing to ask questions. Mm, but then at the same time, I loved how they acknowledged that, you know, they didn't necessarily need, for example, an American to come to Japan and ask those questions, because in the same conversation, they acknowledged that tradition has changed before, you know, historically, there had been empresses, and then that was changed only emperors, and her grandmother altered some traditions by raising her children at home rather than sending them away. So I love how we got that impression of change throughout history as well. The whole thing just felt really well-rounded especially as someone who always skims the politics stuff in books (laughs) yeah I like wanted to get into the politics stuff in this book her grandmother was a really interesting Mm. character who I wanted to get to know even more that's true I feel like all of the characters I I was left wanting more but not in a bad way you know they were you could tell that they were complete people and you got to see a glimpse of them and you just always wanted to widen that glimpse because they were so interesting well there is another book coming (gasps) Okay. Wait, what so, do we know? What do we know about the other I don't, book? I don't, I, I feel like I just gave you the impression that I like have seen it. No, I just, <laughs> um, I didn't know when I was reading it that it's the first in a duo, but I found in my research that it's, there's like Tokyo Ever After number one, and then there's some mention of Tokyo Ever After number two out there. So I assume it will be like Izumi being in Japan, spoiler alert, essentially full time. <laughs> Um, which is what happens at the end of this book and like seeing how she makes more changes. But I don't know. And maybe we'll see more of the parent romance, which I would be really into. Yes, I would love that because they're kind of trying, trying to get into a second chance situation as the book ends. Yes. Yes. Okay. So I'm getting ahead of myself (laughs) as I always do. But Izumi, she tracks down her dad. She's able to get in touch with him directly through like an old friend of her parents from college Love the fact that she just sent this guy an email and was like, hey, can you put me in touch with my dad? (laughs) She gets an invitation to come to Japan and spend time with him. And very quickly, she realizes that she is like out of her depth, which is so relatable and makes me so sad, but also made me laugh. She's like dressed casually for the plane as one would. Like if you were going to be on a plane for that many hours, you would wear sweats. I mean, I would wear sweats. I don't want to speak for anybody else, but she's like going for comfort form not fashion but the minute she lands she's like being criticized for wearing the wrong outfit she's being criticized because she had to take a bathroom break um she meets her hot bodyguard Akio, (laughs) and he's immediately like annoyed by all of these things that she doesn't understand but what i loved about the hero is that you know they start at odds and he's obviously irritated by her but it doesn't seem as if the irritation is forced for the story you can see in his personality why he would genuinely be irritated. Like, they're getting off the plane. Obviously, she's been on this plane for so long, so she had every opportunity to go to the toilet. So he (laughs) hasn't included the toilet in his plan because he's the kind of guy who would go to the toilet before the plane lands. So they get off, and she's like, yeah, I need the loo. And he's like, why are you doing this to me? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> like his his day is legitimately ruined. So yeah. I liked that a lot. He was like, I had this all figured out. This was <laughs> planned. We were going to get you out of the airport quickly. Well, because now like his whole timing is off and the mm. fear is that she's going to be swarmed by the paparazzi, which she isn't. And I think the whole element of like tabloid culture in this book was also interesting to me. I think that that's changed a bit in the States, which I learned largely from watching Britney Spears documentaries, like reflecting on how intense paparazzi culture was like in the 90s and early aughts, whereas here at least, like I think so much of that has shifted to our like just constant obsession with following these people on social media. It seems like there's less interest in tabloids. Like even when I go to the grocery store, I remember when I was a kid, the the racks by the cashier would just be full of tabloid magazines. And there aren't as many now. Like you have your your People magazine, your Us magazine, but I think I think the publications that you might consider to be, quote, like rags, like the tabloids that we see in this book are not quite as big as they once were. And so to be reminded of like how pervasive and how scary this sort of paparazzi situation can be, it was jarring. And I think like I'll bring it back to Brittany again. Like I think we have seen I think we have seen more in the last year or two, like how damaging this can be. And I admit, I don't know a ton about the British royal family, but even in what I've read from Harry and Meghan about the way that the paparazzi impacted their life, Princess Diana, like these stories are out there and I do think we're starting to see them more. And and knowing that added another layer to the way I read Tokyo Ever After. Yeah, to be honest, here with the, the royal family and everything, I wish that I felt tabloids had less of a presence here, but I haven't seen any decrease that I've noticed. And, you know, especially now that the next generation of royals like Harry and William are adults who have their own lives to play out. It's like there's this renewed interest. And actually something that interested me about this book was the the palace says we don't consume media and we don't talk to the media really. And everyone mostly is kind of working together for that goal. Whereas here in the UK, I don't know if people are allowed to admit this, but everyone knows this. The royal family have people who they use to plant stories specifically for their own. And so there's just a lot of lies and manipulation whipped up in the media. And it's really hard to tell where it's coming from and what the purpose is. And so just for me, as like someone who sees these headlines while I'm at the supermarket, it's disorientating and horrible. So I can't imagine how it would be to actually be involved and be subjected to that. Yeah, to be in it. I have heard that it's still it's still a pretty brutal tabloid situation in the UK. So I was curious, knowing that I was going to talk to you, like what your thoughts on that would be. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit more about Akio, the love interest. And, you know, I, I, of course, like you, you figure out pretty early on that even though they're at odds initially, like this is going to be the romance. <laughs> what were your thoughts? I, I read some mixed reviews online. A lot of people really? thought that it was very believable. Um, and then I read a few bloggers who said that while they usually love an enemies to lovers story, they felt like the transition was a little bit bumpy. What do you think? I think that I can see how people might think that if they allowed themselves, I'm going to unapologetically be biased and stand for this book. If you allow yourself to forget that he is the head of her security and he is with her and watching her and observing her all the time, throughout the book he references things she's said and done that we haven't seen her say and do on the page. So I got the impression that he literally changed his opinion about her just by watching her. So 
I feel like a lot of it is obviously his first impression of her is by watching her. When we first see him on the plane, it actually doesn't occur to her that he is there to watch her. And then when they talk, he's obviously judging her because she's been watching uh, Downton Abbey instead of reading about her family. And she looks a mess and she has been eating like countless little chocolate sticks that you get on top of the cappuccino and possibly (laughs) drinking too many cappuccinos and he's like for god's sake this girl so you know it makes sense for me and it makes sense to his character that he would then watch her some more and see her in other contexts and develop different opinions about her so that's why I felt like I really liked the transition you know and for her part it was obvious that she was into him from the start because he was being annoying but in fairness he wasn't being that annoying you know to say he was her head of security (laughs) Yeah, he's also just hot. Like, we're constantly reminded of how hot he is. So, and she's an 18-year-old girl, like, on the plane. She's having a time. She's watching her down Abbey. She's eating her chocolate. And she's like, oh, who's this guy? Oh, he works for me. Like, twist. Yeah, I mean, for me, for the most part, it worked. I I think the way you explained it makes a lot of sense because their their relationship constantly evolves as he sees her in different ways. I think for me, like there, it felt like a little long in spots for me. Like there were just so many ups and downs with their relationship. I could have done with maybe like one or two less ups and downs because I just kind of wanted to enjoy being in it with them. But I think what adds a really fascinating and unique layer to their relationship is another element of like Japanese culture and politics that I personally had never read about. But after doing some research is apparently like a a pretty common theme in Japanese literature. And it's this idea of like, duty to country versus being Mm. an individual. And Akio, as somebody who works for the imperial family has sort of like sworn to make his priority his duty and being duty bound to the emperor ultimately, and to his job. His father worked for the imperial family and Akio actually wanted to be in the Air Force, but because his mother got sick and his dad had to retire to take care of her, like he felt this sense of duty to his family in addition to his country to like step into that same role and work for the imperial family. And he takes that really seriously. And I think that that's like a cultural value that isn't something that I would say is parallel in any way here in the US. And it was really interesting to read about and to see how much it means to somebody like Akio. And then to see how difficult it is for him to maintain his commitment to that when this drive to be an individual and to seek out what he wants as just like a human enters the picture. I also liked how he was allowed so much vulnerability despite being like the the badass love interest the bodyguard love interest true even before he develops these feelings for her and decides that you know before that puts pressure on his commitment to his job and his duty and his family you already see him questioning it because he's saying I don't know if this job is for me and you get to see how from a young age he's been really interested in planes and that's why he wants to be in the air force and that's been taken from him as well I like how you get to be really aware of how young he is and how he is trying to find his way as well. His age is a really good point. I kept mm. I kept forgetting that he was only 20. Yeah. I think that's referenced pretty early on. And then just getting to know him, he seems so much older. And then every time the author would remind us that he's 20, I was like, oh, oh, right. He's a kid. Like he's, he's, <laughs> he's so small. Barely, he's so, he's such a baby. <laughs> he's barely an adult. 
And he has this responsibility to the imperial family, but also to his family. His mother is really ill and he's bearing a lot of responsibility for the family financially. It seems like he's the only one who's providing income to his mom. It seems like they're having a lot of trouble like accessing health resources for her. Ultimately, Izumi like steps in to help as much as she can to take that pressure off of him. But I kept having to remind myself that he is he's carrying all of this weight and he's only 20 years old. And when I was 20 years old, I was certainly not carrying weight anywhere near this. <laughs> I felt like he was just, I really, I loved him. Great guy. 10 out of 10. Five stars. Yeah. I mean, and he was sweet. Like, I think the vulnerability is also a major point. Like, he was swoony. I mean, he has feelings. He's not really afraid to show them. He writes poetry. He makes beautiful speeches. He's just dreamy. Oh, yeah, the poetry. He gives her, like her dad gave her mom, he gives her a poem. And then they sort of exchange poems. And it's so romantic. Oh, my God. It's so romantic. It made me wish that I was a better poet. Or a poet at all, really. <laughs> Um, okay, let's talk a little bit more about some of the hot water that Izumi gets into when she's in Japan. And we don't have to get into all of it because even though we're spoiling some elements of the book, I think there's so much here that like you can go read it and find lots of other juicy stuff. So she has a misstep at a wedding mm. that's pretty embarrassing and oh, the God. tabloids slam her. And that sort of motivates her dad to be like, why don't you leave Tokyo and go to Kyoto for a little while? Like, let's get a change of scenery. But the big drama comes at the end and the tabloids really get excited mm. when somebody tips them off to the fact that she has been secretly dating Akio. And at this point, she's been like meeting members of her family. She's making friends. She's making enemies. She has a lot of cousins, some of which seem really great, some not so great. There are these twins that <laughs> she calls the shining twins because she finds them really scary. And then she has another like cool cousin named Yoshi, who has kind of become like her confidant. Uh, he's really funny. Uh, he has sort of like an eccentric out there personality and he encourages her to go out and like enjoy Tokyo. He's kind of the person that she goes to when she's feeling overwhelmed. And in the end, she's not sure who of these three people might be responsible for tipping off the tabloids about the relationship um, <laughs> because she like doesn't know who to trust. How did you feel about all of the this like tabloid stuff, her missteps, like not knowing what she was supposed to do? I feel like in books when there's like a bit of a mystery and there's intrigue going on, I feel like I'm the ideal reader for that because I don't think ahead and I don't suspect anyone or anything. So I'm always genuinely confused and shocked. And this really worked for me. It got my blood pumping the whole way through. I was on the edge of my seat. I was like, what's going on? Who can we trust? Who's got our back and who do we need to cut? <laughs> yeah. You can't trust anybody, Talia, is what we've learned. Exactly. I was... I was in my feelings, especially the whole last third of the book. Oh, and um, this whole debacle, I felt was like a really great, I want to say climax. I don't even know if that's the right word because that feels wrong. But it was a great thing to happen at that point in the book because it allows her to kind of sink into all her worst fears, specifically that her dad kind of doesn't value her as she is or doesn't value her over you know, the family history and the family responsibility, and also that the man she loves isn't going to be able to get past her position and isn't going to forgive her for her mistakes. And so because she allows herself to truly believe these things and wallow in them, we can then really rejoice in the fact that neither of them turn out to be true. 
So I just felt like it was a great end third of the book. Yes, I think the men in her life surprise her. Mm. Um, but I also love the way the women in her life support her. This was sort of like, I would say like a quiet B plot. But as I was reflecting on my experience reading the book and thinking about she has these three best friends who we primarily see in text conversations who give her like pep talks throughout her whole time in Japan and watching them understand her and cheer her on and try to give her advice the best they can. I mean, they're, they're way out of their league on this. Like they've never been a crown princess. Everybody's doing their best, but to watch them cheer her on and then to see how her mom is also so willing to like step in and do whatever needs to be done. There's no, like I told you so, when Izumi wants to come home because of everything happening in the tabloids, she's just like, great, I'll figure it out. Let me get you a ticket. I'll be at the airport. Done. There's no like bigger conversation about it. And I just, I thought that was really beautifully done because I just love to see women supporting women um, in meaningful, thoughtful, genuine ways that don't like add additional pressure to the situation for the main character. And that's what we get in Tokyo Ever After. Yeah, and I think as well, there were, uh, without spoiling anything, there were, also some, there were also some surprise incidences of women supporting women at the end, where there were kind of like themes that had been humming quietly under the surface throughout the whole book that were brought to light at the end. You know, people who you thought of one way, suddenly you realise that you need to look at things in the context of them being women in a society that subjugates women. And then you realize that actually the way you thought of their situation wasn't the whole reality and you see them in a bit of a different light. So true. So by the end of the book, Izumi has also had a chance to reflect a little bit further on some of some of her questions of identity that we talked about more at the beginning of this conversation. And so I just wanted to read a couple of quotes from the book that I think sum up kind of like where she is as far as like accepting herself. This one was one of my favorites. She, she says, I don't have an American half or a Japanese half. I am a whole person. Nobody gets to tell me if I am Japanese enough or too American. Yeah. What do you think about that? I really, really liked that. I did because I know that earlier in the story when she's very upset, she says something about, she calls herself a Twinkie and the, the black equivalent would be like a coconut or an Oreo. These are all so ridiculous to say out loud. But the point is, you know, this accusation that a person of color looks like a person of color, but quote unquote is white on the inside, which is one of the most ridiculous, demeaning, kind of racist insults out there. And essentially it tries to suggest that white culture by being the dominant can actually change who you are. But the reality is that certain cultures aren't necessarily white cultures. So for example, by being American, she's not a white cultured person. She's a Japanese American person. And when you look at it like that, it really acknowledges the fact that it's possible to be more than one thing simultaneously, rather than falling into the trap of being a person of color makes you uniquely separate from any additional experience. Lots of people of color have multiple experiences and that doesn't change who they are. So to see her go through that journey of calling herself something like that and then ending up at I am who I am and no one else can tell me who I am, that made me really happy. It's a very satisfying arc. Mm, definitely. So the big question that I've been asking all of my guests on New Reads November this year is how does this book compare to the books that you remember reading as a teenager? And what do you think that tells us about the direction that 
YA and publishing and pop culture more broadly is moving in. When I was a teenager, the only YA books I could read that had uh, main characters of colour were by Mallory Blackman, who is a legend here in the UK for writing Black British fiction. So I was very, very lucky to have that, but that was the only option. So all the other YA books that I grew up loving and reading, even though I loved them and saw elements of my experience in them, I couldn't easily find a book that represented significant parts of my experience, like my race. Whereas this book, I'm not Japanese, I'm not Asian, but this book is part of a whole new host of YA novels where you can tell anyone's story and there's no kind of boundary like we already have a black story we already have an asian story you just you're able to tell stories about your own experience and so it's really valuable for all of us i think you know for example i'm not japanese but i still really enjoyed being able to read about japanese main characters yes and also just i feel like i learned so much about japan as a country i mean this book felt to me like a love letter to Japan, the way that Amiko Jean writes about the cities that Izumi travels to and the food that she eats and the people she meets. Like going to Japan has been on my bucket list for a long time. And after reading this, I was like, yep, we're going to move that to the top of the list once travel is safe and easy and feasible again. Like I really want to go and see these places that are described in this book like a fantasy. And, and I don't know that I ever got the chance to get windows on the world in this way when I was a teenager. In addition to everything you're talking about as far as representation, like I just don't remember getting treated to this kind of writing about a place like Japan when I was growing up. That's true. I feel like, um, you know, literature is really trapped in America or at best in the UK. And to see other countries so lovingly depicted in literature rather than othered was really rare as well when I was growing up. Whereas now, you know, for example, this isn't YA, but Therese Bahari is a, an adult romance writer. She's South African and she sets her books in South Africa. And just reading that, it really slaps you in the face how rarely you see a world outside of the US and the UK in books. So that was great. And will you be first in line for Tokyo Ever After number two? I will. I very much will. I'm very excited. <laughs> I know. I love that I got to give you that news. Well, maybe we'll have to do a follow-up episode. Other than Tokyo Ever After, Talia, what have you been reading lately that you might recommend to our listeners? It doesn't have to be YA. It can be. It can be a few things. Just anything that you've been reading lately and loving. Well, I have actually been reading a lot of YA recently because I'm writing my first YA romance novel. And so I knew that the genre had transformed a lot and I was kind of peripherally aware of it and I wanted to make myself more aware of it and just immerse myself in the genre. So the I read recently, in, well, it was a reread actually, Instructions for Dancing by Nicola Yoon, um, which the first time I read it, I felt like... I can't describe what happened the first time I read the book. I had to reread it because the first time I read the book was such an explosive experience that it was like I hadn't properly read it. If you've read it, you probably know what I mean. It has to be read twice. Also really love Charming as a Verb by Ben Philippe, which was such a fun book and it really felt like the kind of thing that I would actually want to see on TV and it made me very nostalgic for my teenage years even though it's set in New York and I am not from surprise I'm not from New York I still felt the vibes what else have I been reading at the minute see usually I would have my e-reader here so I could look at it to remind me but it's dead I always always recommend my favorite ever series the side changeling series by Nalini Singh which I am kind of 
constantly rereading on a loop because I dip in and out of the numerous books um, when I need them. So if you are into adult romance, especially like sci-fi and speculative fiction, you should check that out. And yeah, I've conveniently forgotten every other book I've ever read. So. It always happens anytime yeah. somebody asks me about a book. I was like, I'm sorry, books? What's a book? <laughs> um, well, those all sound great. And I will include links to them in the show notes. So now that you've told us that you're writing your first ever YA romance, <laughs> is there anything that you can tell us about it? Um, I can tell you that the title is Highly Suspicious and Unfairly Cute. Ooh, <laughs> I love that. Thank you. Um, it's about two former best friends turned enemies slash rivals who do an enrichment program in the wilderness. Basically, they have to survive in the woods. And so it kind of forces them to address their past friendship and to develop something new. And surprise, surprise, anyone who's read my books before will be shocked to know that they fall in love. I don't believe it, Talia, not for one second. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that sounds amazing. When is it coming out? Oh, I feel like it's coming out. I want to say it was the date was changed because of um, all the issues that are happening with books, paper, I want to say. Yeah, something. I think I think (laughs) I think it's paper. Right. So because of the paper, it's coming out early 2023. Okay. well, we will definitely keep our eyes open for it as a community. I'm a huge fan of the Brown Sisters. I know there are so many people in the SSR family who are as well. Thank you so much for your work. Um, and it's been it's been so much fun talking to you and I can't wait to read everything else you write in the future thank you so much it's been great talking to you too I've had a great time so thanks thank you so much SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hello SSR pod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR podcast.